Okay, welcome back. I am Kim Munson, and we are dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation. Thrilled to be having a conversation with Randall O'Toole. He's senior fellow at uh, the Cato Institute and director of the Transportation Policy Center at the Independence Institute, which is a free market think tank right here in Denver. And uh, he also has a blog, The Antiplanner. So, Randall O'Toole, welcome. Good morning. How are you? I am good. And uh, you have written a really important piece that's in the Complete Colorado. And just so you folks know, Complete Colorado aggregates news from all over the state, and that is on their page one. But if you click on the banner on page two, that's where all of this original content is. And Randall has written a piece, uh, the front-range commuter rail is a terrible idea. And uh, so CDOT has now $2.5 million uh, to go out and uh, have a request for proposals regarding this front-range commuter. Steve and I said, producer Steve and I said that we would, for just half that, that we would let them know that people actually prefer their their cars. But I don't know if CDOT's going to take us up on that or not. (laughs) Randall, you're, you, did I lose you on that one? No, uh, um, uh, no, I don't think CDOT really cares. I think right now it's being ideologically driven. Uh, the legislature wants to study rail. Uh, people at CDOT want to study rail, uh, even though uh, it's not going to be used. I mean, just as an example, there's only about 2,000 people in Fort Collins who commute to Denver. And most of them aren't going to live near a train station or work near a train station. So most of them aren't going to take a commuter rail to Denver. And so they're going to drive. So it doesn't matter. You build a commuter rail, it's not going to relieve congestion. It's not going to uh, save energy. It's not going to get people off the road. It's just going to spend a lot of money. And, of course, there are interest groups that want to see CDOT spend a lot of money on rail transportation because they make the profits from it. So that's what's going to be really driving this. Well, and I found it interesting in the first paragraph of your piece, you said that they are estimating the cost of the line would be anywhere from $5 billion to $15 billion. I mean, that's a big swing. I mean, I would think they could be a little bit closer on that. Well, I think the $5 billion is for a uh, uh, conventional train that goes, you know, 80 miles an hour at top speed, which means the average speed is going to be about 50 miles an hour. Uh, and the $15 billion is a low estimate for a high-speed rail line. But they've got a problem. They've, they're proposing to build a conventional train in the existing right-of-way of, of the Union Pacific or Burlington Northern Santa Fe rail lines. And UP and BNSF don't mind sharing a right-of-way with a conventional train, but they're not going to want to have high-speed trains in that right-of-way because if one of their freight trains derails and a high-speed train comes along and slams into it, a lot of people are going to die, and they don't want the liability. So what that means is uh, CDOT is saying we can spend 5 to $6 billion building a conventional train Hardly anybody's going to ride it, and then somebody's going to say, well, let's upgrade it to high-speed rail, and it's not going to be upgradable. You're going to have to spend a, start all over from scratch, spend probably 20 to $30 billion building high-speed rail. Even the high-speed rail advocates say this is a dumb idea. One of them says uh, that uh, it's, why should we build uh, a slow train that hardly anybody's going to ride? They want high-speed rail, but that's not going to work either because uh, – it's not going to go fast enough. It's going to cost more than $20 billion. It's not going to go fast enough to attract very many people out of their cars. 
So, Randall, why is there this romance with uh, trying to build rail? I mean, we've seen it with building light rail. And why is there this this push? I mean, it's so expensive, and it seems to just really want to try to get people out of their out of their cars. I mean, I don't quite understand it. Well, part of it is that we look at the past with uh, uh, you know green goggles. We think it was wonderful. Uh, there's one writer who says that just imagine that you're uh, uh, leaving your office in downtown Denver and going out to a wonderful suburb on a commuter train and uh, living in a beautiful house in that suburb. Um, it was a glorious way to live in 1889. The problem is that only 1% of the people lived that way in 1889 because that kind of transportation was really, really expensive. And we forget that. We think everybody can do that because everybody drives a car. Well, driving a car is really cheap compared to taking a train. And so almost everybody can afford a car, uh, but only 1% of the people can afford to ride a train unless it's heavily subsidized. And if everybody's using a train, then the subsidies are so enormous that uh, we've impoverished our urban areas trying to pay those subsidies. Well, and uh, my understanding is is that generally across the, the board in, in America, that the the fare actually only covers about 20% of the operating costs of public transit. Now, I know you've done enormous uh, research on this, great research. Am I close on that? Or Well, if you're just talking operating costs, the fare covers almost a third of operating costs. When you count capital costs and maintenance, however, then it goes down to close to 20%. So uh, the problem is that uh, the... The rail advocates want us to pretend that capital costs don't count. They never talk about maintenance costs. Maintenance costs get really high when the, when the system gets a few years old, starts out really cheap, and then it starts getting real expensive as the system ages. And they pretend that doesn't count. I remember looking at uh, RTD's uh, financial plan, and the financial plan stopped at 25 years or 30 years ahead of time, and yet the real maintenance costs start then, so they just ignored those costs. So when you count total costs, then yes, you're about right, 20%. And that's, you know, we've come to accept that that's normal, that that makes sense. Uh, Amtrak is the same way. Half of Amtrak's costs are paid for by taxpayers. Why does that make sense? You look at uh, the cost of driving, and 95 to 96% of the costs are paid for by the users. And, yes, there is a small subsidy. I think we should get rid of that subsidy, but it's much smaller than the subsidy to uh, transit or to Amtrak. You know what? You, I think you read my mind because that was going to be my next question is uh, when I would bring up my concerns about the, the significant subsidies that are going to public transportation, in, in particular uh, light rail and these rail lines, then off the cuff I would hear from uh, bureaucrats and politicians, oh, yes, but roads are subsidized as well. And I'm like, what? what is it exactly? So there is a small subsidy, but it's primarily paid for 
by gas taxes. And on that, though, Randall, I remember doing research. A, a significant portion of gas tax money is being siphoned off and pushed over to these transit programs. So perhaps if you didn't do that, you, the maybe do you think that the, the gas taxes would actually pay for all the roads and bridges? Well, at the federal and state level, yes. Uh, but gas taxes go to the states, or they go to the federal government, which distributes them to the states. The states share a little bit of them with counties and cities, but counties and cities don't get enough gas taxes to pay for roads and streets. And so the maintenance of those roads and streets generally is paid for out of property taxes. Now, you can argue that uh, the property owners get a a benefit from being on a street that's that's well-maintained, and so... Uh, it's appropriate to charge them, but it looks like a subsidy because the people who are driving on those streets aren't paying for them. And I think it would be best if we just got rid of that subsidy and paid for everything by the user. So that way they, could, they won't be able to argue that, oh, yes, you're getting a penny subsidy per passenger mile, so therefore we deserve a, a dollar or two dollar subsidy per passenger mile for our rail transit boondoggle. Oh, that is absolutely fascinating. Okay, you know what? Let's go to break. Let's go back to your piece when we come back because you've you've talked about Colorado, uh, but you've you've um, actually looked at other states, other um, what do you call it, commuter rail, uh, and uh, let's let's break that down on what's going on in Utah and some of these other places because I think it's very telling. And uh, so this is Kim Munson. I am talking with Randall O'Toole about his very important piece that is uh, in Complete Colorado, that the Front Range commuter rail is a terrible idea. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back. I'm Kim Munson, and we are dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation. Thrilled to have on the line with me Randall O'Toole, and we're talking about this uh, $2.5 million that's been earmarked by the Colorado legislature to to give to CDOT to do a study regarding a... um, uh, commuter light rail uh, from Pueblo to Fort Collins. And, uh, Randall, it's really good. I, I always learn so much when you are on with us, so great! I greatly appreciate it. Well, uh, commuter rail is a little different from light rail. Light rail is electrically powered and operates in the streets. Commuter rail, uh, in this case, will be a diesel-powered train with uh, diesel pulling several passenger cars and will operate... Uh, it, sometimes they operate on the same tracks as freight trains. This time they're talking about operating it in the same right-of-way on brand-new tracks that they, they plan to build in the right-of-way of UP or BNSF uh, rail lines. And that's going to be really expensive to build brand-new tracks. Uh, and we can look at Utah and see uh, how well it's going to work because Utah did a similar thing. They, they built a a rail line from Ogden to Provo, about 81 miles, and it cost $2.5 billion, about half as much as, uh, as, as CDOT is planning to spend on a uh, Fort Collins to Pueblo line. And they carry less than 9,000 round trips per weekday. That is, less than 9,000 people are taking this train to work. And that very high cost... Uh, for divided among 9,000 people works out to about $30 a trip or $60 a round trip. Without a kind of money, they could have bought every single one of those daily riders 
a brand-new all-wheel-drive Toyota Prius, and not just one, but buy them a new one every other year for as long as they operate these trains. <laughs> oh, my and, gosh. And that's actually one of the more successful commuter rail lines. There are other commuter rail lines around the country, such as one between Dallas and Fort Worth, that cost as much uh, cost enough money to buy people a new Toyota Prius every single year. So we have uh, the experience of Utah. Uh, you can also look at New Mexico to Colorado South. Where they've got a commuter rail line between Santa Fe and Albuquerque. They're only carrying 1,400 people a day round trip between uh, Albuquerque and, and Santa Fe. And they're spending enough money to buy a new Toyota Prius for every round-trip rider every 15 months. So, you know, I, I don't propose that we actually buy anybody Toyota Priuses, but I think that's a good indication of how much money this is wasting and how Colorado's, which is going to cost a lot more than either Utah's or New Mexico's cost, uh, you can probably buy them a new Toyota Prius every six months. Wow. And the other thing that you said, and I hadn't thought about this, is how would this train be powered? And you said it's going to be powered by diesel. And diesel is uh, made from a fossil fuel, if I'm correct, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, there is such a thing as biodiesel, but most diesel comes from fossil fuels. And even biodiesel, usually only, you, you usually only put 10 or 20% biodiesel into your diesel mix. So you're burning a lot of fossil fuels. And you look at these rail lines around the country, and they use more energy and emit more greenhouse gases per passenger mile than an average SUV. So if you're driving it around in the Lincoln Navigator, you're more environmentally friendly than the commuter rail lines like the, like the New Mexico line. Randall, why, why is there such an assault on people being in their cars? Because I, I, I think that, you know, we, you see CDOT doing these different studies about congestion and, and getting people out of their cars. You know, they're going to be doing a listening tour uh, all over the state about the, the way people like to travel. And to me, it doesn't seem like it takes a rocket scientist to figure out that people are actually voting with their car. They're letting you know how they want to travel when they are in, in sitting in traffic. I think they just want they want that problem solved instead of, uh, and the, I don't think the answer is, or they don't think the answer is, getting them out of their cars. There's got to be a different answer. And it just seems to me like you don't have to do a listening tour to figure out how people want to travel. How would you respond? Well, there's two ways of doing transportation planning. One is to uh, uh, figure out how people want to travel and then try to make that travel as safe and efficient as possible. And as you say, 90% of travel in the United States is by car. It's not quite 90%, but uh, ground travel, it is 90% if you, if you discount airline travel. Uh, and the other way is to imagine that people travel the way you think they want to travel or you think that they ought to travel, and then design a system for them and then hope that they'll actually travel that way because that's the way you designed it. And in order to get them out of their cars, you allow congestion to rise to terrible levels and hope that they'll stop driving. Well, that never works. It's never worked anywhere. 
Uh, we still have 80 to 90 percent of all travel, and every urban area in America is by car, uh, and so it's not going to uh, do anything. Why do they do that? I think it's because uh, different people have different reasons, but for a lot of them it's about control. If, if you get people out of their cars and on the mass transit, you decide where the mass transit goes. And then people can only travel to where that mass transit goes, which means you can then decide where people get to go. If you let people drive, they're going to go to places that you might not want them to go. For example, Denver has an urban growth boundary. If you let people drive, they'll drive outside the boundary. They'll build houses outside the boundary. That would be terrible. So <laughs> you have uh, mass transit that only goes within the boundary, and if you get people out of their cars, then they can't leave the boundary. They're pinned in. And that's the way they ought to be. Well, and that that is, and that segues over. We only have about four minutes left, but uh, I think that you've taken a look at it, and I'm trying to work my way through Blueprint Denver, which was just passed by the city council back in April. And what I see in that is that these politicians and bureaucrats and interested parties, I'm calling them PBIs, are doing exactly what you're saying. They are trying to keep people into specific neighborhoods. And and it's it's kind of rampant throughout Blueprint Denver that they're going to use rezoning um, um, policy to, to accomplish that. And they're going to map every single um, piece of, of real estate in in uh, in Denver to make it an inclusive Denver so that it it hits these certain parameters and I actually I find it kind of terrifying Randall well it's uh, something that's been very popular on the west coast in Seattle Portland San Francisco Los Angeles uh, they draw urban growth boundaries and then they demand that developers build higher densities within those boundaries of course high density housing costs more per square foot than a conventional single-family home. Uh, so they say, we're going to have affordable housing, which means you're going to have a 600-square-foot apartment, and that's going to be affordable. It's going to cost about the same as a 2,000-square-foot house, but they consider that affordable. And uh, it's uh, to me, it's social engineering at its worst. Uh, we already tried that. We, I mean, uh, 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 Earthlings tried that <laughs> in a part of the world known as the Soviet Union, uh, they built all these high-density apartments, and they built mass transit, and they wouldn't let people buy cars. And uh, it proved to be very inefficient. It made people unhappy. I, mean, I don't know if you saw the Chernobyl uh, uh, HBO series a, a few weeks ago, but it depicted all these people who were assigned little teeny apartments and then living in these high-rises all over the place. And that's the way people in, in uh, the Soviet Union lived. As soon as they got their freedom, they went out and bought single-family homes and they bought cars. And now they don't live that way anymore, most of them. Well, but and they did for a while. And for some reason, we have this uh, mentality that that's the way Americans ought to live. And I think it's ridiculous. I mean, Colorado is not exactly running out of land. No, we're not. And we're just about out of time. First of all, I want to mention your website. It is uh, the ant. Uh, what is it? Uh, the anti-planner. Anti-planner. Just Google anti-planner, and I'm the first thing on the list. Got it. 
And I've got it right here in all kinds of information here. So first of all, you know, we talk about getting understand these issues. And an important place to do this is the anti-planner. You said it's dedicated to the sunset of government planning. How about we plan our lives instead of government? I think that is a really, really good idea. So... Randall O'Toole, we've, what you have just described, this is what is in Blueprint Denver to get people out of their cars into these teeny tiny little apartments. You see them up and down the corridor now. They're starting to look like the Soviet Union. What can we do? Uh, we've got about a minute. What can we do? Well, I think it's time to start electing officials, both at the state and the city level, who are skeptical of these ideas, who aren't going to believe all the urban planners on their staffs. And, you know, people have to stand up and say, look, just because some urban planner says something that they learned in planning school years ago doesn't make it right for how I want to live my life. Well, my gosh, you got that. And so we need to get our brains around these and we need to support people that are are stepping up to run on these city councils. And I think we've been a little bit behind on that because, you know, everyday people are out there working and, and kind of. Assuming, I think that they've assumed that their uh, elected officials at the local level have their best interests in mind. And as I've seen, and I served for four years on city council uh, of my town, and I realized that uh, I could kind of smell what was going on. I, I saw that I kind of smelled that there was danger. I didn't quite understand it. But as I'm working through this blueprint Denver, you know, we need to, to push back on that. That's for sure. Randall O'Toole, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. I greatly appreciate your, your dedication to this, your hard work, and uh, you really understand the numbers. Thank you so much.